0: The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Kerry here. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope our time together today helps you, well, maybe identify and break a growth barrier you're facing. And if it's financial, well, you came to the right place. Vance Roush is back on the podcast. We're going to talk about why millennials will be the most generous generation, tectonic financial shifts that are happening right now. Uh, we will touch on crypto and how planning not to lose kills organizations. This is uh, just a great episode with Vance. I love his leadership so much. And this episode is brought to you by Compassion and Glue. Compassion partners with over 8,400 local churches to break the cycle of poverty in local communities. Visit compassion.com slash carry to explore what they can do for you and your church. And last year, Glue's Reach program connected over one hundred and twenty seven thousand people with churches across the country, you can go to get.glue.us slash reach to connect with more people from your community who need you. Well, Vance Roush is the founder and the CEO of Overflow. It's a Silicon Valley company that's helped over 400 nonprofits and churches raise tens of millions of dollars using their revolutionary platform and process. We also talk about a pivot he's made with Overflow. Uh, if you love startup stories like I do, you're gonna really enjoy this one. He's also one of the pastors at Vive Church in San Jose. He's a fundraising expert and he and his wife, Kim, live in the Silicon Valley with their four children. So. He gets it done. I'll tell you. Hey, one thing I've got to let you know. uh, First of all, this is not financial advice. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about how to raise money. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. It is not financial advice. Please consult a financial advisor. Secondly, you need to know I'm also an investor in Vance's company. Not a major one, but significant. Just wanted to disclose that. That is not why he is on this episode. Uh, But anyway, I want you to know that just so that I am transparent about that. We were an early series investor in his privately held company. So anyway, that's not why he's on the show. He's got a fascinating story and uh, just wanted to let you know about that right up front. And man, I really hope this helps you lead. When I talk to church leaders in particular, raising money is one of those things that is just really hard. It was hard for me for the first 10 years until I finally figured out how to crack the code on raising money. And most leaders I know, most church planters I know say, yeah, we don't have quite enough. So hopefully this really helps you today. And hey, one of the things you should do with money is share what you have. And so I want to highlight a ministry that is all about the local church, and that is Compassion International. I've worked with them for many, many years, and their mission is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And they do it by partnering with local churches in areas with extreme poverty. My wife and I, we sponsor a number of kids. I've been to a number of villages, mostly in Guatemala, where Compassion does incredible work. And do you know that Every child sponsored, all 2.2 million, are cared for by a local church in their community, every one. They don't actually go to like a compassion center, they go to the local church. So they're partnering with over 8,400 churches in the developing world, and that means if you're a church leader, Compassion provides valuable resources for your church as well. So our church partners with Compassion, and I would love for you to check it out. So you can visit compassion.com/slash carry to explore the resources that compassion has available for your church. That's compassion.com/slash carry C-A-R-E-Y. And today's episode is also brought to you by Glue. If you're like most pastors, your outreach strategy hopefully looks nothing like it did a year ago, let alone 10 or 20 years ago, because things are changing. So fast. And Glue has a revolutionary new program called Reach. Last year, Reach connected over 127,000 people with churches across the country. These are people searching the internet going, I got questions about life and Glue connects them with local churches. That's an average of 12 new contacts every month for churches that sign up. So here's how it works. Glue partners with recognizable national campaigns for Jesus. You've seen He Gets Us, K-Love, Churches Care, a lot of others. When people respond to those campaigns and ask to connect with the church, Glue matches them with a church in their city. Then your church receives connections in a dedicated inbox using Glue's suite of free texting tools to communicate with them and build relationships. Super easy to use, doesn't require additional staff, and costs are covered by kingdom-minded donors. The best part, with others focused on running Expensive and complex campaigns. You don't have to build this stuff. It's free and you can build the relationship. So if you're curious, go to get.glue.us slash reach. I'm going to say that one more time, get.glue.us slash reach. And you can start connecting with people in your community who say, hey, put me in touch with the local church. And now my conversation with Vance Roush.
1: Vance, welcome back to the podcast. Carrie, what an honor and a pleasure. I'm so excited for this combo.
0: Well, so am I. I've I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the years. And, you know, as I disclosed at the beginning, an early stage investor in your company. That's not why you're here. Hmm. Uh, I invest in a lot of things. They don't always show up on the podcast, but I just really love your story and what you're doing. So I want to pick up here. You've taken your startup through a few business cycles, (laughs) uh, launching literally in the 2020 crash, which was absolutely brutal for tech. Um, now we got a bank failure in the mix, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. You've got the incredible rising markets of 2020 to 22. Then you've got higher interest rates, layoffs all over Silicon Valley, bank crashes starting right next door to you. What are you noticing about resiliency and learning as an <laughs> entrepreneur in this season? <laughs> it's crazy. Oh,
1: my goodness. What a summary. Carrie, let's uh-huh. breathe. Let's breathe really quick. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> when you summarize yeah. all of that, you know, it's funny. Um, in hindsight, it's funny, right? Going through it, yeah. uh, it really tests your metal, um, yeah, as they say. We started a company um, right in the middle of the pandemic, right? Uh, literally, as I was pitching my company to investors, March twenty twenty happened, right? <laughs> and so it's like, okay, that that's kind of crazy, but the company that I was pitching was a giving platform, Overflow. Uh, Just for anybody that doesn't know, Overflow is a giving platform specifically that has unlocked non-cash asset giving for churches and charities. Um, And I started looking like a genius a little bit because the stock market, you know, after a crash in March, really started to rebound and rip, right? But not only stocks, Robinhood, crypto, everything was Mm -hmm. just ripping um, you know, again, hindsight's 2020, but maybe part of that was because people were just bored at home looking for things to do. <laughs> right. Looking right. to invest I'll get into in, crypto. Yeah, yeah. And try to, you know, um sharpen their financial literacy and and all that type of stuff. So I've been on this roller coaster since we endeavored to to start this company and lead this company through all those different waves right? Um, you know, I look like a genius and then I don't look like a genius when the market crashes in May, 2022. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm saying, Hey, you know, uh, non-cash asset giving. And then a lot of people are like, well, the market just crashed and crypto's not so hot. Right. And you have a stock and crypto donation platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then fast forward a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I write this book for High growth fundraising, the Silicon Valley way, and then the Monday um, I'm meant to launch it. The weekend before, Silicon Valley Bank fails. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, and so, uh, title change. Uh, title change. <laughs> yeah. And so, I feel like I I, I need to maybe write a, a book about you know resiliency at this point, point. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and really it'll, it'll just be you know stories of. Really, what we've experienced um, leading through this roller coaster and having an opportunity to show resilience. And so, to your question, I'm actually grateful for it, Carrie. I'm actually yeah. grateful for these seasons. I think why I'm grateful for it is because resiliency means that you need to deal with reality, resiliency produces sustainability. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that some of the cycles that we went on, some of the, the bullish cycles that we went on, we now know were just not sustainable, hmm. right? Some of the money printing cycles during the pandemic where people were receiving checks and things like that and loans and things like that, at the rate at which we were doing it, we're learning now, wasn't sustainable. And so part of the resiliency story is getting to a place of sustainability. And I'd say this, our business, our company, our team, because we've had to show resiliency has never been more sustainable, has never been more sound, um, has never been more clear. I think resiliency produces clarity um, and clarity produces energy. And so in a weird way, I'm actually energized by it. Yeah. So
0: one of the one of the challenges, like you always have external factors, and you've had those. I mean, as long as you've been human beings, you've had wars, you've had great depressions, you've had the recession of two thousand eight, uh, so much stuff. But it seems like twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty three was a real roller coaster, right? And you know, you're a young entrepreneur, young leader, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: heading into that. What happened inside your head? What was your head game? How did you You know, because they say, I think it was Andy Stanley who said, you know, momentum makes everything look better and lack of momentum makes everything look worse. Mm. And I think that's very, very true. How do you not get caught up in the hype or then want to just throw in the towel uh, in a year like 2022 when it all kind of, the the external things kind of collapse?
1: Yeah, I've had to learn to sharpen my processor, Mm. you know, every. Every computer has a processor and Silicon mm-hmm. Valley is actually famous for Silicon chips, which has been able to accelerate the rate of innovation with that processor. So our processors are now smaller and smaller. You have companies like Intel. Um, yeah. That's what's happening in people's brains and people's mentality. And it's kind of crazy. We're living through a time where we're learning that that processor needs to be sharpened because the rate of change is to a, uh, pace and a level like we've never seen before, right? And so, you know, the last time in 2008, when WAMU, the largest bank failure of all time, um, when WAMU failed, it actually failed across 14 days. Hmm. When Silicon Valley Bank failed, it happened in 24 hours. Yeah, no kidding. Right? And so things are just happening faster things are happening at lightning speed, that means your processor needs to be sharpened. Um, when I talk about processor to make this really practical, um, part of what I need to process and sharpen is to protect the believer in me. Mm. So the 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 same thing in me that allowed me to take a leap of faith to start a company, that believer in me, right? That That optimism inside of me. I have to process external and internal situations at a level and also now at a rate that protects that believer in me. Mm-hmm. So I don't get cynical. So I don't start drawing back. So I don't um, start playing not to fail and start um, focusing on what could go wrong, but continue to remind myself, but what could go right? And so. How do you do that? Honestly, simply asking those questions and reframing myself to those mental models um, and reminding myself and refreshing myself, uh, you know, the origin of why I even started the journey, right? Um, you know, Jesus kind of does it with Peter, um, you know, when he re- reappears back to Peter and, and, and points Peter back to the place, right, of the, of the origin. And, and that's what I have to do sometimes. I have to be super grounded. Part of the resiliency is being super grounded in my why, right? And, and when I got to the place where I understood my why is actually when I launched the company. But that was a journey to even get to the why, right? Because you have to ask yourself multiple whys before you get to the actual core, um, pure, true place of intention that can, you know, have you be resilient through these tough times. I'm going to get the phrase a little
0: bit wrong, but I'd love to go there. You said something about, you know, playing to win versus planning not to fail. and That really resonated. I think you're right. In adverse conditions or when a leader gets cynical or when a leader gets, you know, a pastor or an entrepreneur gets discouraged. We can start just running defense, and part of that, honestly, part of leadership is how do I not go bankrupt in really volatile conditions? Like I get your newsletters and that kind of stuff too, right? So I get it. Like you're playing a game where the stakes are high, and Mm -hmm. we're and most startups fail. Yeah. So can you can you explain a little bit more because we talked about the first time you were on the show, you're in Y Combinator, you've had some of the Mm -hmm. best coaching, you worked at Google. Mm -hmm. What is the difference in your mind as a leader? between playing to succeed or playing to accomplish your mission versus, versus planning not to fail. Yeah, and, and
1: please rephrase that in the proper phrases. You, you nailed it. Uh, okay. I would actually highlight in this a Silicon Valley principle of how Silicon Valley actually operates. You can only lose one X your money. Okay, there you go. You can, right. you can only lose one extra money. What does that mean? The venture capital model is not, I make 10 investments and I believe all 10 investments are going to a billion dollars, right? There is an expectation actually that with those 10 investments, seven, eight of them are likely going to fail just based on statistics, mm-hmm. right? But the venture capital model is based on the fact that one, two, maybe if you're really good, three of them are going to be massively successful. And that's how the math works out. So that means you can only lose one extra money, but it's asymmetric in the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so actually playing not to lose in a Silicon Valley mindset doesn't do anything. It actually is better if you fail fast so that you could learn or even honestly shut that thing down and start again rather than just sitting in this kind of mediocre line, right? And this is not the same paradigm that everybody should adopt because if you're running a lifestyle business, a small business, even a church, right? Um, You should not have the mentality of just like, start a church, fail a church, start a church, fail a church. That's probably not the right mentality. But I'm talking about a very specific, if you're trying to do something at a scale where millions or even billions of people are using your product, which is the Silicon Valley way, they just think about it's a different game, right? And so that's what I mean by that. Well, and I think um, planning
0: not to lose is a mindset that is very easy to play. And I've got a few decades on you. I think it's a frequent companion to age, Vance. Okay. You know, once, because right now you're young, you've started out. And I remember being like 30 and Mm. it's like, we got nothing to lose or we'll go broke trying or that (laughs) kind of thing. And that's really easy to say when you actually have nothing to lose. Right. It's not that hard. Right. It's like, all right, I got nothing. (laughs) Let's go for broke. But as you get older, and as you become more successful, that's why I think success makes you conservative. Success makes so you true. afraid. Success makes you, well, now I got something to protect. Now I've got something. And I I, I want you to go there. Like, what happens to organizations? Because I, I I agree, we're not looking for, and I remember Tim Ferriss interviewing, I think it's Mike Maples. Does that name yeah, ring yeah. a bell? Yeah. Like okay, it. you would yep. know Mike mm-hmm. Maples. Yep. So basically, that's what he said. That's how he's, he's a, a, a venture capitalist. Mm. And he said, I make 10 bets on companies, 10 investments in companies. I know seven are going to lose. One or two are going to re- return one or two X. So basically, seven out of 10 failures. Total, like, yes. kiss that money goodbye. Yep. But he says, you get one Uber or yes. one Dropbox or one chat GPT, OpenAI, yep. AI." Yep. And he says, that's 100 times, a 1,000 times, 10,000x returns. And that's how you make your money. And again, exactly. I don't think that applies to every company or every business. But the just planning not to lose hmm. mindset, I see that pervasive. What are the dangers? If you started leading your company today, let's put it this way, where you're just planning not to lose, what happens?
1: Yeah, so... I think if you're leading your company in a way not to lose, it's the fastest way to stagnation, Mm. right? And so you're in maintenance mode. And we actually know that maintenance mode, biblically speaking, is lazy and wicked. Uh If we want to talk about Uh the parable of the talents, (laughs) right? And so if we want to talk about it biblically, actually, our mindset should be multiplication, not maintenance. Mm. Um. And so to your point, though, I fully agree. I mean, you know, uh, a privileged part of my journey is that my wife and I co-founded a church with our lead pastors, Vive Church here in the Silicon Valley. Mm. And we talk about this all the time as a team, that it was so much easier to be risky in the first couple of years. Because mm-hmm. to your point, you have nothing to lose, and nobody nope. would know.
0: <laughs> and no one would know. No one would know. You got a dollar, you lose a dollar, you make a dollar. That's fine, right? You got a person, you lose a person. Exactly. you Exactly. Nobody yeah.
1: knows. The community's not that big, um, and you're just you're just naturally able to take risk easier. Um, we're 11 years in. We just bought our first building here across the street from Google. Um, you know, it's a it's a quite expensive investment that we've made um, thousands of people are to come into Christ. It's it's awesome. Mm. God is moving. Uh, but to your point, it's so much harder to take risks. Yep. And so what I think the progression is, is that risk has to look different, right? Mm. Even with our friend, Mike Maples, right? At the end of the day, he's still taking a portfolio strategy. Right, right. And so that's what I think is, you know, if you're looking to continue to um, move the needle, especially when you think about the next generation uh, for Mm -hmm. church planning and church growth and things like that, um, you have to make strategic investments into Gen Z, into things that could fail, but you're not all eggs in one basket. Does that make sense? You're taking a portfolio approach and you have margin for things to fail so that you can allow for things to succeed.
0: And that's sort of the idea of constant experimentation. Exactly. What are you trying that's new, right? Maybe you've got a goose that laid the golden egg. Maybe you've got a strategy that's really working, but everything has a life cycle. Yeah. So how are, how are you doing that three years into your company? it'll This summer will be three years since you launched Overflow. <laughs> how are you calculating risk differently? Because now you actually have clients. You've actually got a team. You've got real payroll. Mm-hmm. You've navigated. Um, multiple economic scenarios, probably more than you ever imagined in July of 2020 when you launched. Yep. So, how are you calculating risk differently than you did three years ago when you were launching?
1: Yeah. So when we launched, we were primarily known as a stock and crypto donation company. Mm-hmm. Um, but we needed to accelerate towards our original mission and vision faster than I even anticipated. So what do I mean by that? And what that? was that original mission? Be? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the mission of Overflow is to inspire the world to give based on a biblical proverb, Proverbs eleven twenty four: The world of the generous gets larger and larger. So if we believe that is true, why would we not build a platform that invites people to live a generous life, which means that they'll live an enlarged life, mm-hmm. right? And the vision was very specific. To build the infrastructure that makes generosity frictionless across every major asset class. And so, the obvious answer at the time that we started the company was to unlock stock and crypto donations, which, even in this environment, Carrie is unlocking incredible generosity. And we can talk more about that. Yeah, we but yeah. we also found that. There are other things that are inhibiting generosity that are not even just in the non cash asset space. So, for example, um, fees. Uh, some people don't like the fact that there are so much uh, merchant processing fees attached to mm-hmm. a gift. Um, and definitely, churches and charitable organizations that are receiving the gift don't like that either when they see it in the PL. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, oh, it's not just about unlocking net new um, giving through non-traditional assets, but it's also maybe incorporating a new thing within our platform that saves churches and charities money on giving through regular credit debit ACH. And so Mm -hmm. creating innovative business models, creating exclusive partnerships with payment processors where we can negotiate that rate all the way down. And so now... My company has taken much more of a portfolio approach, offering other ways that we can help serve churches and charitable organizations. Um, And that has been a really exciting thing to see is that the environment has forced us to innovate further and offer new ways that we can serve felt needs and pain points uh, for our customers.
0: We're going to get into a lot of the details about crypto, about um, new asset classes. I want to go there. Millennial giving versus boomer giving. I mean, this will be, we're going to get into the weeds, which I love. Love But before we do, you know, I am really intrigued by this journey of the last three years. One of the challenges a lot of leaders have, young or old Vance, is they have that internal, like, I got to keep myself encouraged. Yeah, There's a multiplicity of voices. I know you've got a board. I know you've got a team. Mm -hmm. How do you determine, and probably on that team, you have a, a range of like, not doomsayers, hopefully you don't have them, but very conservative (laughs) people who are like, hey, you got to be careful, you know? And on the other hand, you got people like, roll the dice, you're going to win, you know? Come on, come on, come on. So you got some real encouragers and maybe you have some more cautious people around you. What is your current framework for discerning which voices to listen to, which voices not to listen to? And is that changing in any way?
1: Such a good question. I think that, And this is something I'm continuing to grow in, uh, but some of the constant principles that have stood the test of time um, is number one, prayer, right? I think prayer is so important. You know, we say at our church that it's our first response, not our last resort. I know a lot of uh, faith communities have adopted that mentality um, and bring really prayer at the forefront. Is really really important. I also subscribe to this idea that time is the best truth teller. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, when you know the current situation looks like it's against you, if you're operating at a first principle, choose in time. If you're operating in first principle, choose it'll come around to resolve itself out. Um, mm-hmm. I see the same thing with relationships right is the people that have stuck with me in the peak times and the valley times and has been steadfast and consistent in my world i can trust right and so that person that's super bullish in my world but is just recent in my world <laughs> i'm uh-huh. going to temp i'm going to temper that bullishness or i'm going to temper that guidance right i'm going to take it as one input um, and put put it through my filtering system. That other person that is super negative or pessimistic in my world that just entered my world, I'm going to also temper it the same way. But those people that have journeyed with me and been through the peaks and the valleys and are steadfast, largely those people are typically not are not at the extremes. And those people right. typically are not actually trying to tell me what to do or give me advice. They're actually... Giving me more questions to reflect back, to help me reflect and process um, kind of how to contextualize things. And instead of answers, they're giving me direction. Right. Mm. And so th- that's what I've kind of valued, and that's what I've allowed to help navigate these seasons.
0: <laughs> that's good wisdom, right there, Vance. So let's dive in a little bit. Let's go to crypto. Okay. One of the yes. most controversial topics, just to pick something light to start with. <laughs> um, you know, it was on this rocket ride in 2020, 2021 to unheard of valuations. Uh, it became a bit of a laughing stock in 2022, where a lot of, like, from the Super Bowl ads right down, To the pit at the end of the year and now so far as of recording this about a 72 percent gain in 2023 what's your take on crypto right now i mean who was it who came out and said it would have oh gosh should have done my research like a trillion yeah bology okay so talk about who bology is
1: from bitcoin is going to go to a million in 90 days yeah. And so he
0: see, and what's it at right now as we're recording this? Well, in April? when he
1: said that, it was like uh, low 20,000s. And now right. it's. And it'd been up to what, 70? Yeah. At its peak, it was at 70. Um, uh-huh. Since he said that, it actually popped to, you know, it's like 30,000 now, around mm-hmm. that range. You know, this is, by the way, not financial advice. We're not- uh, No,
0: no, this is not financial advice. We're this not is, RIAs.
1: This is a you know, we uh, are nope, having nope, the water cooler nope. talk about crypto. And I personally um, don't believe that that's going to happen. Um, at the time that we're recording this, we're about a week into him making that prediction. So we'll see, I guess. (laughs) But I personally um, don't think that uh, Bitcoin, its price is going to reach a million dollars. But I do think that he was saying that for impact and effect. Balaji is considered one of the leading voices in the crypto Web3 space. Um, He's reputable too. This is not just some person saying things. Um, he was it's not some TikTok influencer. Exactly. Right? He was an actual executive um, at companies like Coinbase and, and things like that. So he is. We'll a, link to him in the show notes. Exactly. If you want more. Yeah. He is a, a reputable source um, that I think was saying it for a point of impact and effect because of people's losing trust in the central banking system here Mm -hmm. in the U.S. and even honestly globally with the 16th largest bank in the world failing, right? Um, That was kind of unprecedented, uh, the way in which it failed. And then also this inflation that has not yet been under control um, Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And so the idea is that people are looking for ways to hedge against inflation, So, you know, for anybody that's listening to this, $100 in your bank account today is not necessarily $100 next year Mm -hmm. because of inflation. And if we get into a state of really high inflation, or even in some countries, unfortunately, that face hyperinflation, that $100 could mean literally minimal, um, and- And because of that dynamic right now, people are looking for yield, they're looking for protection, and they're fleeing to asset classes that they believe can be resilient through things like inflation. The fundamental idea of the blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is actually to hedge against those things. For example, Mm -hmm. Bitcoin inherently only has a max amount that you can mine from it. And so even just the fundamental paradigm of this currency is meant to be anti-inflationary.
0: And in that sense, it's like gold. There's only so much, right? You can dig forever. There's only so much, so. Exactly.
1: And so that's my take on it. My take overall is I can't predict what the price is going to be tomorrow or in 10 years, but what I can be long in is this idea that yes, Eventually, we will need asset classes, just like the publicly traded stock market has been for a lot of people for decades, Mm -hmm. that has yield, has growth to it, that is productive. And so the challenge for crypto overall, I think Bitcoin has a fundamental utility, but the rest of the tokens, cryptocurrency, the rest of the Web3 space is going to be challenged to continue to find actual utility. And if it can continue to find utility like I believe Bitcoin has, it will always be valuable.
0: So you don't just outright dismiss it like a lot of analysts do. And I think for the purposes of this conversation, I mean, people will have opinions about, oh, I think it's a gimmick. I think it's this. Here's the reality. For those of you who serve a church, lead an organization, lead a nonprofit who are trying to raise money kind of doesn't matter what you think. Your people have stocks. Your people have <laughs> yes. crypto. They have invested. And whether it was some guy on a Reddit thread that was just like, oh yeah, I got into this, right? Like they're trying to figure out how to give and you're trying to figure out how to lever. Leverage that generosity. Exactly, that's the purpose of this conversation. That's okay, the point. so crypto. A little touch on CRISPR. We're not a crypto. We're not doing a CRISPR. Yeah, let's get into CRISPR. No, never mind. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> gene editing. No, that's different right. podcast, different subject. Um, so let's uh let's talk about the difference between how millennials think or handle money, or how boomers do. And by the way, I loved your book. I had the privilege of endorsing it. Oh, thank you. And I thought you had some really, really good stuff. It's called High Growth Fundraising, the Silicon Valley way. And I thought your take on millennials being the most generous generation (laughs) was number one, surprising. That's going to shock a lot of people. And I don't disagree with it. But number two, really illuminating. So let's go there. Let's dive down on that. I think
1: bit. it was a little bit of a hot take, right? Um, depending yeah, on your perspective. Some people still label millennials a certain type of way and a certain type of persona, hmm. right? Um, I know growing up, I'm a millennial. I'm like right in the middle yeah. of a, of being a millennial. And I've heard and even agree um, with some points around things like entitlement um, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. The reality is this, why I say that millennials are going to go down as one of the most generous generations the world has ever seen is a couple of reasons. Um, just macro economically speaking, we're undergoing the greatest wealth transfer the world has ever seen. So $30 trillion is being transferred. Actually, we're in the midst of it right now from Mm -hmm. boomers to millennials and maybe some of that Gen Z as well in the next decade. Yeah, that's crazy. So think about that right there. Just hard stop. $30 (laughs) trillion
0: is going from aging and dying elders and boomers
1: to their kids. Exactly. Exactly. And the way that millennials are thinking about the inheritance of this wealth is fundamentally different from how our parents and our grandparents thought about it, just fundamentally different. The other macroeconomic thing that's happening, um, and I believe it was Morgan Stanley that did this study, but millennials are facing one of the fastest rises of income increase that the world has ever seen. Like the velocity in millennials earning capacity in the next decade is going to be at a velocity that the world has never seen. Is that because of the wealth transfer or other factors? Part of it is because of the wealth transfer. um, And part of it is because you have younger people um, starting more valuable companies. I think technology is a good example of how there are many millennials that have come into wealth faster and at greater levels than their predecessors. And Mm -hmm. it's not a zero-sum game, especially in tech. It's become a growing pie. Yeah. And and so you have these wealth-generating factors for millennials happening. And then on top of that, millennials already proportionately like, based on their net worth, give more than generations preceding them, just statistically. Like, speaking. already. Already, like today. Mm. Um, as a proportion of their net worth, they're already giving percentage wise more than their predecessors. But also, the deeper level principle that I've seen carry is that millennials identify giving with their identity. More than I've seen growing up from even my parents or my grandparents. Like, it is something that they tie to the, their core being. In, in the same way that they would
0: ethically source clothing or get into organic food or vegan, not for dietary reasons, but ethical reasons, that's what you're getting at?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And be, because they see giving not as even just a duty, maybe mm-hmm. generations previous to us, and that's noble, right? To see yeah. philanthropy, to see generosity as part of my duty and my responsibility. It's even more than that. It's it's my identity for millennials. And so there's not a right or wrong answer, but what I'm saying is that when it's in the identity bucket, that's almost like an unlimited bucket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like duty, obligation, and responsibility runs out. But my identity, who I am, is a generous person. I start crafting my whole world around how I could be more generous. So this is, I wanna, I wanna go a little bit
0: deeper on this, Vance, because I'm I'm thinking through how paradigms and understanding shift. So first of all. I'll give you a little bit of an essay here and then stop and actually ask a question. Love but it. I agree with you that millennials will be more generous than people expect. Even when I started ministry in the 90s, you know, the stereotype in the church was better pay attention to the people in their 70s. They give all the money. Mm. Well, I you know, challenge everything I hear. So I went in and got actual disclosure. And I'm like, actually, that's not true. And consistently over the 25, 20 years that I led our church, it was the 35 to 55-year-olds who are the most generous. Wow. That makes sense. Without the inherited wealth, rising incomes, most people do not give from wealth. They give from income. Yes. They give out of their cash, out of their bank account. So your bank account is probably most flush. You hit your peak income years in your 50s. You retire. You move to fixed income. And your giving starts to drop. Now, once in a while in a capital campaign, there might be a 68-year-old or a 72-year-old who can cut a significant check. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at day-to-day giving, it tended to be younger people anyway. The other thing that's really different is, and this is why I really want to explore the identity and the characteristics of millennial givers a little bit more with you, is we're living in the middle of a big crack in history. Mm -hmm. If you go back 200 years, I don't know where your ancestors were. Philippines, was it? Yeah, that's right. That's my heritage. Yeah, mine were in Holland. And I always think I came from as peasant a background as you could imagine. We were all dirt poor, working on farms, backbreaking labor, that kind of stuff. If you've ever seen Van Gogh's 1872 painting The Potato Eaters, I'm like, those are probably my relatives. Wow, Like 100%. Just peasant background, my parents immigrated, they became entrepreneurs, they did fairly well. They they ran a company for 25 years, mm. but it was in manufacturing. Their son goes into the professions, law and then later ministry, etc. Very typical immigrant path, but we have this narrative about well, you know, in your 20s you'll get married you'll buy a house, you get a job, have kids, not necessarily in that order. That's already been threatened. But also this idea of the middle class is actually a post-World War II phenomenon. You know, this, when you really study it historically, the middle class didn't really exist. You were rich or you were poor. Mm. You were a robber baron in the 20th century, or you were a peasant. And now we're moving into income inequality. You see greater gaps. And I'm just curious when people think about giving and that's, I mean, some of that's open for debate. You can, you can debate that in different ways, but I wonder when I read what you wrote, whether we're moving into this new paradigm, because you think about it, there's the way the boomers got their wealth was not from their parents or grandparents. They got it by getting good jobs, middle-class, moving up to upper middle-class, some to upper class, but it was pull yourself up by your bootstraps, et cetera, et cetera. That's shifting, and I wonder what that's going to do to the mindset. So, end the essay. So good. Um, Any thoughts on that? Because
1: I think that really impacts how leaders will approach their donors. I think you historically took us on a journey that explains the psychology between generations, right? Mm -hmm. And again, it's not a right or wrong answer, it's just our understanding of human behavior. And responses yeah. to what they went through. Right. And so when you think about that boomer mentality, I would then say, based on what you just shared with me, that maybe the psychology is protection, money is protection.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Preserve the capital. You hear that all the time with older mm-hmm. folks.
1: And so is that a is that a millennial value? No, I think the millennial value <laughs> is meaning. Mm. And so an experience. Experience. So, you know my parents and maybe a little bit of my grandparents, but mainly my parents, because they're the ones who immigrated to America and their dream, our dream as a family was the middle America dream, which was the house in the suburbs and the white picket fence. And I'm so mm-hmm. grateful that by the grace of God, they were able to achieve that dream for us to give us a platform, to have an education and to learn and all of that. I'm, I'm glad that that dream was realized. The reality is that myself and a lot of my friends, their dream is no longer the house in the suburbs and the white picket fence. It's just not. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not mm-hmm. right or wrong. It's just not their dream. Their dream is experiences. Their dream is adventure. Their dream is meals and meanings with close friends, right? And so when the dream shifts, from safety and security to impact and meaning, that's where generosity is now more tied to my identity. What what I give to the organization, I align myself with my generosity. So it's even just so much more than um, oh, I'm a generous person. It's what am I aligning my generosity to? Right. So even right. the church that I pick is tied to my identity. Now, more than it was ever before, right? Because my, my parents, they went to a church, but I wouldn't say that they had their identity in the Sunday service or the community that we were a part of. But some of the millennial churchgoers that I'm meeting now in this kind of, in the places and spaces, there is a resurgence of church planning and things like that. It's like, no, we're going back to Acts 2. I'm, I'm giving it ever. Mm-hmm. I'm giving my all. All my talent. Wow! All my tithe. All of my time. You know, I'm I'm giving it all. <laughs> you know that there's more of that mentality. Well, that that's a hint into my
0: next question, which was so. There's this thirty trillion dollar investment coming into millennials and <laughs> yes. in younger Gen X, which we can't even honestly get our heads around. We don't even know how much Wild. a trillion dollars is, right? But it's a it's amazing. So let's say that's somewhere between a half million dollars and low millions deposited in a lot of bank accounts Mm -hmm. over the next little while. Do you think that the, first of all, donors are not flexing to give that to the church. They're not like, we're going to write the church. Boomers are kind of like, this is going to my kids. It's going to my grandkids. It's going to go there. What is the millennial reflex when that money comes, because it sounds like more trips to Asia, more trips to Europe, more amazing meals out, the influencer lifestyle that too many people dream about. Look at me on my boat. Look at me on my car. Look at me on my, you know, like
1: where, where, it, where do you think naturally that money will go? It could do that, Carrie, And yeah. I think that's the open ended opportunity that us leaders have, right? Is that uh-huh. it could do what you just said It could do, or we can help influence that to do something more meaningful, right? Um, And so I do think that's where leadership comes in. I do think that's where um, pastoring comes in and shepherding comes in so that people understand that some of these endeavors most probably are going to be empty at the end of the day. Um, But here's here's the problem though, is that, Some people are making all this money, they're inheriting this money, and then they work for companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, right? And Google's mission is this, to organize the world's information so that it's accessible to everyone, okay? Wow, what an amazing mission that has now impacted billions of people, like billions of users, okay? So you, you have a tech millennial that's working at a company like this that feels like they're on mission, and then they go to a Sunday service, and then there's no vision. <laughs> or if there is, it's way yeah. smaller than their employer. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so, so, so Why? Like if, if the vision of the Sunday service and what we're doing in our church community is smaller than even my employer, right? And so that's what I'm saying is like, it's open-ended. So this, this mm. financial tectonic shift is happening and will continue to happen. That's an inevitable. Um, the open-endedness and the opportunity that we have as faith leaders is to give people a I mean, Jesus was ambitious. <laughs> he said, go into all the world. Paul was ambitious. He says, I run this mm-hmm. race to win. I, I didn't just do this for the participation award. He said, I run this race to win. What does that speak to? Ambition, right? And I mm-hmm. think sometimes in the faith communities, ambition is could be vilified, But this is what millennials are looking for. They're looking to make a difference. They're looking to make an impact. They're looking for a big vision and mission that they could be a part of. They're not about not planning to lose. Exactly. So,
0: you know, just one editorial comment, then some more questions. But I think, this is just spidey senses, but I don't think the average pastor looks out at his or her church, sees a bunch of 35-year-olds, and thinks that they have money. Because they hear all the bankrupt stories. They hear all the, you know, oh gosh, it's just so hard. And that's a very real reality. I mean, food insecurity, housing insecurity, blah, blah, you know, inflation. I get it. I get it. But for a percentage of people, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And I think there's value in what you just said to rethink, actually look at the numbers and prepare people. Like, you know, if you've been given a lot, a lot is expected. And I think that's our role as leaders. And you're right. It's tied to vision. Any other um differences between how boomers think about money and millennials think about money.
1: Oh, a lot of differences. <laughs> okay, let's go there. Let's go there. A lot of differences. Um Spend Me Not did an epic uh, kind of list of like 22 different ways that millennials manage their money. Um I think, you know, if I were to try to summarize it um it would be that millennials are a lot less risk averse mm. okay mm. and so when you can get them fired up about something when you can get them rallying millennials are some of the greatest ralliers yes right true. if you want to put on a protest if you want to put on an event, a concert, right? Millennials just rally, right? In the pandemic, when people were raising money for COVID-19 efforts, I just saw no giving platform, just Twitter and Venmo and millennials just raising large sums of capital to deploy towards COVID-19 relief efforts um, when it just had hit. And so there is this, I mean, GoFundMe, one of yeah. the most valuable private companies in the world right now um, is an example of how millennials just rally, right? Mm-hmm. NFL Kickstarter, yeah, Kickstarter, how get it off the ground, right? NFL players experience tragic injury, spin up a foundation. Millennials just go and and they rally, right? And so, I do think that there is. Uh, less of this risk aversion at the end of the day, um, which influences a lot of things. I'm not saying all of it is good because millennials are not contributing to the retirement funds at the rate that boomers so wisely did, Mm. right? And so there are some flaws to it for sure. Oh, sure. Um, But I think as it relates to uh, a church pastor, a senior church leader, or um, even... A, a leader that's trying to start an organization to, to mobilize millennials, they're less concerned about the safety and security, and they're more uh, focused on how are we gonna make a difference? And right. if you can show me that, we'll rally. And money is just a tool, one way that we're gonna get this done. But how else can you use me? Can you use my talents? Mm. Can, can can you use my knowledge? Can you use my connections? Because I want to give all of it. Right, right. I want to give all, my whole self to this. feels like a
0: vision competition. That's a really interesting way to think about mm. it. You know, what vision is going to captivate the mind of a generation? Exactly. That's so helpful. Yeah. So helpful. Okay. You also get into asset classes, which seems very technical. And this is where, <laughs> you know you're too long, didn't read. Uh, But this is really good uh, because I think this is very important. So let's let's recap. Most people, I don't know what the percentages are you do. Uh, But if you think about how you raise money for your nonprofit, for your church or whatever, it's always, well, you know, Vance makes a decent income. Hopefully he (laughs) gives 10% of his income, which is great. But what is the difference between giving from wealth or asset classes versus income? Just paint the broad picture, then I want to get into DAFs.
1: The broad picture is that people that donate to something or multiple things today, 90% of their wealth is actually in non cash assets. Right. right? Especially for the top 1% and top 10% of earners uh, and people of that category in terms of net worth, definitely most of their wealth is in stocks, securities, ETFs, mutual funds, IRAs, et cetera. Real estate. Right. And then especially for kind of the the average American, uh, if they have any kind of significant levels of net worth, a lot of it is in real estate. Right. Right. And so you got to think about it. And this is increasing. Alternative investments, even outside of uh, real estate, is continuing to increase and is not going to stop. And so the broad stroke picture is this, is that, you know, we focus all of our efforts as charitable organizations and churches um, to encourage people to give from where 10% of their net worth is, right? And so it's kind of like asking people if you're raising money for a building, for example, to give from their leftovers. Why would we do that, Mm -hmm. right? And that's partly why we call our company overflow. How can we tap into abundance? How can we tap into the place where they're actually storing wealth? A big part of it is some people don't even think that way. So if you can invite them into imagining um, and lifting limitation, that's part of the unlock, right?
0: Right. Yeah. And I I added real estate to the list. So let me just caveat that because I've had this conversation with Dave Ramsey a couple of times. If you have a net worth of a million dollars, you could say, wow, you know, I'm rich, I'm loaded. But if it's all tied up in real estate yeah. and you don't actually have any savings, that's a non-liquid asset. Correct. And it's really unusable until you sell that's it. Right. And he would say, technically you're a millionaire, but not really. Because most people who have money would be diversified beyond just a principal product. That's Right. Right. So we're talking about, and again, this is not the majority of the congregation, but this is, if you're going to raise money for a building across from Google headquarters, you're going to have to tap into non-cash assets, right? Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Most people are not, and and people who have higher net worth are not sitting around with $10 million in cash in their bank account. Unless they're worth, you know, $300 million, they might have a spare account somewhere, but probably not even that. So, you're looking at people who have diversified asset mm-hmm. classes in beyond that. So, can you explain what a DAF is, a DAF?
1: Yeah, a do- DAF? A donor advised fund, or like you said, mm-hmm. a DAF is one of the fastest growing financial vehicles in the past five years. Um, wow. Specifically, what it does is that there are these big brokerage houses like Fidelity and Charles Schwab. That have a foundation arm to their business. And what that allows people to do is, you know, you take a tech person or even just a, a business owner um, in the uh-huh. Midwest um, or, you know, a, a Wall Street banker in New York. It, it doesn't actually matter the prototype, but when they have a windfall or a big liquidity event, typically, Um, they will open up a DAF because they want to use that as a tax strategy to minimize the capital gains tax on that big liquidity event or that windfall. So you're offsetting it. Mm -hmm. And what a DAF does is it allows you to offset it in that year you had the windfall. And then once those securities, it's usually non-cash assets that go into that DAF um, and they get diversified in a portfolio within that DAF. But once that um, sum of money is in that DAF, you can now then uh, tithe from that account for the next ten years. Mm-hmm. You can give philanthropically from that account for the next ten years. Um, DAFs, though, still today, even though it's one of the fastest growing financial vehicles, is still reserved for like the top one to two percent of people because mm-hmm. you know some brokerage. Account- Accounts require large minimums. Um, you know the average. What would an
0: example be for a large minimum?
1: Like twenty five thousand at least, 100. right? Okay. Um, and then yeah, some of them even have a hundred thousand dollar minimum. And then the average DAF account value in America right now is one hundred and sixty seven thousand dollars. And so you you just got to think that's not the average American, right? No, and so. No. The idea of overflow is taking the same concept of people seeing gains in their non-cash portfolios. Um, and the you know, market's volatile. Gains are a derivative of when you got into the market, your cost basis. And so for example, mm-hmm. Bitcoin is down to 20, 30,000 right now from 70,000. But if you got in at a dollar, you still have a lot of gains. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this idea that, okay, um, we need other tools and infrastructure where people don't necessarily even have to open up a DAF. um, So they don't have to do all of this like paperwork and account opening um, and, you know, do all these minimums, but still give like a DAF owner would give. Does that make sense? And there's a,
0: yeah, there's a stat in your book. I don't know whether you've got it off the top of your head, but there's a, you would think that it would be a flow through i put $25,000 into a daf right. by december 31st i've given $25,000 but there's a whole lot of money sitting in dafs
1: 120 that hasn't billion has been given 120 billion there in this there's a
0: number 120b billion DAF holding sitting in pens. dafs yeah not given and and again if leaders don't know that these things exist you have no idea how to cast vision or have conversations. And maybe you're like, well, I'm not comfortable as a pastor thinking about that. Great. Then get an elder or your okay. exec pastor or somebody on your team who understands this stuff, or you're going to miss it. And people might think, well, you know, I'll just see what I have in my checkbook and I'll write you a check, but they're not thinking about the, ga- the DAF. Okay. There's some other emerging, you have a whole section in high growth fundraising about other emerging asset classes, some of which I follow finance with some detail because I'm just I, I enjoy it. Uh, but stuff I didn't even know about. Like there's REITs, which I think a lot of people have heard of, but but art is being monetized. And can you talk about some other asset classes that are being opened up as potential sources of donations?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool. The proliferation of fintech um, and that yeah. technology is starting to securitize any collectible, really, right? So from... Wine to okay. fine art all the way to Pokemon cards and Jordan shoes. <laughs> uh-huh. Pe- okay, so let's, let's break down into, that phrase. Yeah. Before we go deeper, securitize
0: any commodity. Mm-hmm. So historically, if I want to collect baseball cards, yeah. I just go to the baseball card store in different cities mm-hmm. or online or eBay. I amass my own private collection. Same with Air Jordans, same with wine or art or whatever. I remember there was a history teacher uh, when I was in high school, who had quite an art collection. I went to his house once and he had so much art, it was just down every hall. It was almost like hoarding, except with really expensive paintings. And I'm like, you've done really well, it was crazy. I mean, I was 16, what did I know? <laughs> I didn't know. But that historically, that's what we think of when we think of collectors, yes. whether that's stamps or,
1: or whatever. Now, how is that changing? It's changing in a big way. I mean, it, it kind of started with uh, stocks. So, fra- yeah. fractional ownership in a company is what we're talking about, right? right. Shares right. of a company. Yep. And so that has continued to get more and more fractionalized. So, for example, like back in the day, you literally would purchase an actual certificate mm-hmm. of Coke or whatever, right? Yep. But because of technology, yep. right? Like the NASDAQ, everything just happens on computers. Right. Sure. And now you're getting a representative share um, as represented through a user experience and a UI on Charles Schwab.com. Right? right. And so that's how it's now manifested and proliferated. But even more than that, with fintech such as Robinhood, let's say Amazon stock is $3,000 and you can't afford even buying one share. Companies like Robinhood, what they've done is fractionalize that even further. So you
0: can can buy a fraction of a share. Yeah, so you can
1: just say, oh, I have $100 that I want to invest into Amazon. Now I'm getting a fraction of a share of Amazon, right? And Uh so what's happening is that it's basically just this large database in the back end that is being managed at scale because of cloud computing, because of technology and things of that nature, and able to reach the end consumer, me or the end user, um, through a beautiful UI experience, which wants which allows me to engage more and more in it, right? And so you take that same concept of part ownership in a company or even fractional shares of a company, and then you now apply that to anything of value that could potentially grow in value. So not only companies that um, get cash flow and companies that produce products and have revenue can produce value on this world, right? There are other things right. that produce value. so. Art has historically produced a, a lot of value, especially like fine art, that there is this kind of mm-hmm. scarcity element to it and there's a demand for it constantly. Then you have wine, <laughs> right? There's a yeah. production of wine and specifically fine wine that will appreciate and value. There are certain antique cars and all the way goes mm-hmm. down to, you know, baseball cards, Pokemon cards, and other collectibles like Jordan shoes now. Is like, right, is pretty much art, right? And so it is. Yeah. If you take this idea of those things can produce value and those things actually only used to be accessible to high net worth individuals through technology, a company can actually take custody of, let's say, a Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. And then they can provide, just through technology and through a database, they can offer shares of ownership in that Van Gogh. Right. And then in the
0: same way, almost like timeshare, Exactly. Right? You know? Exactly. Yeah. And
1: instead of having to show up physically at an auction in London or Paris or New York, you have this cool app where you can just buy a fractional share of that from the comfort of your home. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. let's say that Van Gogh was acquired for a million dollars and then in, you know, 2 years sold for 2 million dollars. Everybody that had a fractional ownership gets to share in the dividends of that sale, right? Right. And so that's happening at scale now across a lot of alternative assets through fintech. Which has good and bad
0: aspects too. It's (laughs) making everything more unreachable (laughs) to the average person. But, you know, there is the sense that the art world, for example, was old wealthy people going to Sotheby's in New York or London or Paris or wherever I imagine these fintech apps, I mean, it must be a whole new demographic. Is it getting into fractional ownership? Like describe who is participating in these new asset classes.
1: Yeah. So in the rise of Robinhood, they've seen better days, but you know, a couple of years ago when they were really exploding, half of all new brokerage accounts in the in the world were started through right. Robinhood. Mm. And Those brokerage accounts were new investors entering the market. And so when I say that, you know, millennials are thinking differently about giving, um, they're also thinking differently about investing, right? Mm. And so there is a new mentality, right? That's why, um, you know, uh, collectibles like cards, baseball cards and Pokemon have made a resurgence because there's like a nostalgia factor with some of Mm -hmm. us growing up. And, you know, more than wanting to invest into just Tesla and Apple, I also want some of my net worth invested into these nostalgic items that I know have a lot of demand to it. Um, And so there is this now uh, diversification across more and more asset classes. And this is not going to stop there's going to continue to be this diversification and this democratization. Um, And so it's going to become more accessible to more and more people. So what does that mean for your church? What does that mean for your charitable organization? You need to think innovatively. And like we were saying earlier about crypto, instead of like speculating on it and, oh, I believe in it, I don't believe in it. The reality Mm. is it's happening. And how are you providing options for your people to give that optimizes the opportunity? That's the first principle truth. How do you just provide options and let people that are clever within your congregation make a decision? Hmm. No, you know, and you're right, because you could argue, well, now it's
0: becoming even more commoditized, but that is a form of democratization, if you look at it through another angle. That that Van Gogh, which would have only been accessible to the top 1% of the top 1%, You might have fractional ownership in it one day. But anyway, that's a whole subject for another day. Um, How do you identify high capacity givers who are not yet giving?
1: Mm. That's a really good question. I, I think that a lot of times we can get so focused as senior church leaders on our metrics and what what gets us excited sometimes, like if we're really honest, is, you know, the CFO or the executive pastor gives us a report, and then we realize that, oh, there's a new top giver in our organization. Um, and then, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I invest some time into developing relationship. I'm not saying that's bad, but that misses um, the fact that there are probably so many high capacity, high potentials in your church, your congregation, your organization um, that are just sitting there waiting to be unlocked, right? Mm -hmm. So the funny thing about metrics is it's backwards looking. (laughs) And so not just being driven by metrics, but actually being driven by meetings. So we say this thing here in the Silicon Valley, do things that don't scale. Right. It's like you know, in the early days of church planning, you're just you know everything is just meeting with people, being in people's worlds, um, stacking chairs, stacking chairs, yep. <laughs> encouraging people, unlocking people, um, you know, fanning into flame the dream that God put in their heart, and things like that. And you know, there is leadership, and and there is um, you know a, a sense of scaling as an organization scales. But what are things that a pastor shouldn't scale? Meeting with people. <laughs> right mm. having like a carved mm. out amount of time where you're meeting not just with historically who your top givers were but those people that have a hunger and an appetite to want to be discipled and to be unlocked and so i think that's part of it you know one thing that um we felt god spoke to us as a leadership team and specifically to our pastor here um, in the Silicon Valley at, at Vive Church, my pastor, Pastor Adam, one thing God spoke to him was he was really challenged um, in this idea that we live in you know a pretty wealthy place. And so somebody had prophesied over him that, oh, you're, you're going to have millionaires in your church. And we were at the time, we were like, oh, well, Obviously, we live in the Silicon Valley, (laughs) right? But then there was another word. um, They're not going to come in as millionaires. Hmm. You're going to make them, right? And so it's this idea that are we providing a place where people can flourish? Are we providing a place where before they became successful, (laughs) right, that we can come alongside them? and help them grow spiritually, help them grow in their faith. And actually that's better because if they have their intention right and their mission right even before they become, you know, the successful millionaire and things like that, then that's going to be more sustainable. Right? Well,
0: You're also really, you know, all these things we talked about, which honestly, I think to most leaders listening to this podcast or watching it are probably going, yeah, I had no idea this stuff existed, (laughs) which I I get it, but it's discipleship. And years ago, we decided to sit down with the cash giving and help people say, okay, we're going to talk about giving down the road. Let's figure out how to do a budget. Let's get you living with margin and living on mission. And that proved huge dividends. And it was like budgeting 101. It's Dave Ramsey, that kind of stuff. And and it just provided so much freedom for people in the church. And they were so grateful. And we're still doing that. But I wonder if that needs an update. Because when you're just talking about cash, you're talking about, for a small percentage of people, 10% of what they have. And they're like, well, actually I do own this, you know, fintech fractionalized ownership of Michael Jordan, you know, Air Jordan collections, you know, Nike, or I'm into art or, uh, you know, I've got, I've got this whole new category of stuff that sort of is my life. And this goes back to the, the problem we talked about earlier, which is that kind of wealth accumulation will automatically go to more experiences, better meals, bigger houses. Exactly nicer cars, that kind of stuff, if you don't have a counter vision. Do you have any thoughts or strategies um, on, like take Vive Church, for example, on how to cast vision around this broader giving than just look at what's in your bank account and give 10% of your income? Like, Yeah. Because those are increasingly outdated categories.
1: Yeah, language is big, right? Um, I think that's one way you identify uh, and unlock new streams of generosity is just, are we evolving our language? And so for example, Mm -hmm. most churches have a giving moment, uh, within the service. Right. And typically what we're doing is, uh, by the way, it's kind of funny. Um, sometimes I think our mentality is we can convince somebody to be a tither in like two minutes that's definitely exactly, that's definitely exactly. not happening. You're
0: going to go you're going go from 0 to 10% in the next 90 seconds. Yeah. I know it's and going And then to we happen. have
1: like these super yeah. elaborate giving moments where it's like a sermonette <laughs> before the sermon and it's like, "You know what? What people actually need is to understand how the church is impacting the community and actually more of like a very logistical way of how they can be part of that difference." right? Mm -hmm. Instead of like this big dissertation on the tithe um, and trying to convince somebody in two minutes, um, really what they're needing is just a quick reminder about the first principles of generosity, what generosity does in our community, but then logistical. Here's the thing is we say, okay, now go to our, you know, website, vivechurch.org slash give. um, And then we're pointing people to only give in one way. And so the existence of this statement here um, we serve over four hundred churches with our company now the the existence of this statement alone here, fifty two times a year, and there's so many ways to give here at this church. You can go to our website, um, but you're not even limited anymore to just your checking and savings. Um, you can actually participate in generosity through things even like stock and crypto, if that's something that you have, that phrase right? That's there. it. And you saying it fifty two times a year. They might not do it right then. But when they have an opportunity to do it sometime within the year, especially if you're gearing up for a capital campaign, you sowed a seed in their mind, like through osmosis. They said, Oh, yeah, that's right. My church, there's a lot of ways I can actually participate in this mm-hmm. building campaign. Mm-hmm. And boom, that's the unlock. Yeah,
0: that's so helpful. One one other thing, I'll just throw this out there and see what you think. I didn't I didn't send you this in advance, but I I heard it earlier this year, and it really intrigued me, and it can't leave me. I don't know whether I would do it, uh, and you know I'll offer a sale on kindling wood if anyone wants to burn me on a stake uh, at the stake, because uh, it's a bit heretical. Love it. But if you think about the millennial mindset, and you're right in that target, it is very difficult to describe tithing. And I've done it over the years. And you're right. It's a longer dialogue. But if you want non-givers to become givers, this idea, it's not mine, was uh, subscribe to our church. Wow. If you think about millennials, they have, and you mentioned this in your book, subscriptions to everything, Mm -hmm. right? From a gym to what they watch, to apps, to some Patreon thing they have, to, you know, their whole life is subscriptions. It usually goes $100, $200 a month minimum. And then it goes up from there. Um, As a way of understanding giving,
1: do you think that's a helpful metaphor or just really a disaster? I don't think it's a disaster. What I love about it is that there's a willingness to innovate our language, right? Mm -hmm. And evolve our language. And I think that is a necessity. I would say that there's this thing in sales that you learn called objection handling right? Ah. And so when you are thinking about your audience, you have to have in mind, if you're going to be an effective communicator, what objections might they have about what I'm about to say? And some of the best uh, preachers in the world, they're doing this with their sermons, right? Mm -hmm. They are, they have this, you know, word from God, And then they're thinking through their audience, what their audience might say, and they're baking into their sermon, automatic, proactive objection handling, right? And so when you talk about, you know, doing a sermon series on something like the tithe or even having a conversation one-on-one, discipling somebody on getting the revelation of the tithe, you got to think about the things that they're thinking in their mind that is stopping them from getting that revelation, right? So for example, some of the biggest objections that people might have about the tithe is, isn't that just a church tax? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, wait, Mm -hmm. isn't that
1: just a old covenant? I thought we lived in the new covenant, right? And when you understand that's how people are thinking about it, you can bake in proactively things like, hey, and if you're participating in the tithe here at this church, what we believe is that the tithe is not actually Old Covenant. It actually came before the law. The first formation of the tithe was through Abram when he won the battle. And it was a recognition Mm. that he can only win that battle because of God, right? Mm. And so it is not a requirement for heaven, (laughs) right? It's not a requirement even to be at this church, right? But it is, a precedence that we want to set, especially if they're on your core team. Hey, we don't want you to ask from anybody else something that you're not doing yourself. So for dream teams out there, mm-hmm. I communicate it as this is a precedence. And also personally, it's a signi- signification of the priority in our life that you know Jesus is Lord over every single aspect. And I'm communicating in this way because I've already predetermined what the objections might be, and I'm doing objection handling through my communication. Yeah,
0: that's super helpful. That was just, uh, that's for people who listen to the end, just so uh, I give you something to get upset about. Um, (laughs) So so Vance, I I don't even know whether I agree with it. I just think it's a really intriguing idea.
1: Anything else you want
0: to talk about with giving?
1: Oh, I would just, yeah, I would just encourage, uh, you know, especially church leaders out there, really any leader of an organization with, um, a really great cause is that the community that's there in front of you, um, they're looking reasons, they're looking for reasons to give. They they want to be generous. If you go all the way down to our molecular structure, right? Um, we are wired to give as human beings, right? There is a dopamine that hits your brain when you give financially, not just of your time, when you give financially. And so when you have that mentality, and it's more about what you want for people than from people, you can really cultivate a healthy, I believe, a healthy... Uh, atmosphere of generosity in your organization. Ah, That's a great word. Well, the book
0: is called High Growth Fundraising the Silicon Valley Way. It's out everywhere now. And um, where can people find you or Overflow online these days, Vance? Yeah,
1: on all the social channels, just uh, search for Vance Roush, my name. Um, And then more importantly, uh, if there's any way that we can serve you um, through our technology, it's overflow.co. Overflow. Co, not. Com. Co, and if you put the slash carry on there, uh, we'll de- definitely take special care of you because we oh, love, because we yeah, love, yeah. we love carry. But you know, um, those are the different ways we can connect, and I would love to to connect with anybody that wants to go deeper on these topics.
0: Awesome, Vance. I love what you're doing. I love what you're opening up. Giving is a really important discipline for me personally and my wife. And when I heard about your idea, I'm like, wow, I just just love it and love the mission you're on. And thank you for helping us over this last hour and a bit. So appreciate you. Thanks, Gary. Man, I learn so much every time I sit down and have a conversation with Vance. He is a super sharp young leader. So whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a not-for-profit leader trying to raise money, or even a business person thinking about cash flow, hope you enjoyed this episode. And remember, this is not financial advice. So make sure you check with your financial advisor. But I thought it was a fascinating conversation. You can get a lot more in the show notes at carrynewhoffcom slash episode 570. You'll also find transcripts there. Man, leadership is hard. We just want to make it easier for you. And so do our partners. So make sure you check out Compassion because they partner with local churches to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Go to compassion.com slash Figure out how your church can be involved. That's Compassion com slash And Glue's Reach campaign will connect on average 12 new people a month to every church that signs up. Go to get.glue.us reach to connect with people from your community who need you. Next episode, we got Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller coming up. Man, we have a great conversation. I was excited for this one. It exceeded my expectations. Here's an excerpt.
2: I lied to my wife for years. I didn't know I was lying because it made sense to me. It's just like, babe, I got to, I got to be doing this thing. You know, this really requires my, but, and I convinced myself that the situation was temporary. And, and so I'd say, you know, as soon as I can replace this director of marketing, then things will normalize and Mm -hmm. I can give you and the girls the time you need and deserve. Or, or once I get acclimated to this promotion, I'll Mm -hmm. give you and the girls the time and attention you need and deserve. But the problem is you string those temporary situations, one of them bleeds into another, and pretty soon it's a life like that. And we it's self-deception. And at some point, we have to just take a hard look in the mirror or the, a hard look in the eyes of our spouse who lovingly confronts us and just say, something's gotta change because what I'm doing now is not sustainable. And it's going to lead to a bad end.
0: That's next time on the podcast. Also, uh, we're going to talk about the new math of church planting with Warren Bird and JJ Vasquez. Horst Schultze is back. Seth Godin, Henry Cloud, Caitlin Beatty. Who else have we got? Chuck DeGroat is coming up. We've got Judah and Chelsea Smith. Also excited to have John Acuff and Brad Lominick back on the show and Richard Foster for the first time. If you subscribe, you get that automatically for free. And, uh, well, it's free wherever you're listening to this podcast. And thank you so much for sharing this show. You are helping us reach more leaders every single month, and we're grateful for it. And one last thought for you. If you're ready to end dreadful meetings with, you know, that person, toxic people who are ruining your culture, and if you're ready to stop losing your best leaders, then it's time to check out my training program, The Art of Team Leadership. And in it, I will walk you through a step-by-step process for finding and developing better leaders for your ministry and creating a thriving team culture. You can simply visit theartofteamleadership.com and discover for a limited time how you can get access to my training program for only $17. That's it. $17 to start. Check it out, theartofteamleadership.com. Thanks so much for listening. Cannot wait for the next episode. Share it with someone you love. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.